If entropy, the law of entropy, was true, it essentially laid to waste all of the utopian goodwill found in places like the French Revolution and the American Revolution. Hello! Goodbye! No, don't leave. This is why are we talking about rabbits? This is a podcast aimed at folks who like you and maybe like Neo in the Matrix and maybe like Santa Claus. They all have and experience a sense of dislocation. I mean, think about Santa Claus. He doesn't even kind of resemble who he was when he was really in his, you know, heyday, a bishop. I mean, Santa Claus, really? Okay, look, this is a podcast for you around the holidays, and it's about freedom. And we're sharing it on Watar. And the rabbits, those rhetorical things that pop up, and we're not even dealing with those. We're going right to the heart of the matter. Heart of the matter. We're going right to freedom. Today, part two, Freedom is Confusing, brought to you by Fyodor Dostoevsky. In this episode, we're going to look at Fyodor Dostoevsky, a Russian. So I want to pick up where we left off last week. And I just want to do it with a quick review. Last week, we talked about two types of freedoms, inside and outside. Those are my terms, but they coincide with lots of philosophical movements throughout the ages for all of human history. Inside freedom, I was referring to as the type of freedom where people sort of feel it's inside them. Nobody can take this away from me. It's the thing you die with, some sort of integrity or something, courage, honesty. It's the thing that you acquire within. In history, many legs, now legs come from the Latin root there, from the word religion, and I'm using it the way we think of ligaments. They hold your worldview together. So religion is the thing that holds your worldview together. Where many ligs have throughout history invited people into a pathway or onto a pathway that leads them to freedom. We talked about that last week. That type of freedom gained from a union with the creator, with God, that type of union was the preeminent notion of freedom for most of human history. It wasn't particularly political, the notion of freedom. Freedom wasn't spoken of that way. It was at times, but it wasn't the fundamental goal of a government to provide freedom. Well, that changes. So the second type of freedom, this is the kind of freedom you think about when you see an American flag or when you hear the words totalitarianism or democracy. We talked about how in America, the founding fathers, right, they offered a type of political freedom from the government, from those who hold power. This freedom has everything to do with law and with doing things either on one side or the other of the law. It's how much space you have to be, quote, you. So in history, this kind of freedom presents as outside freedom. That's what I'm calling it. So today, I want to look at these ideas because I think I'm going to introduce to you someone who shoots down the middle, who's able to understand freedom in a particular way, a magnificent way, what I would call a divine way. He's touched. And his name is Fyodor Dostoevsky. He's a Russian. I want to weave in Dostoevsky, right? He wrote novels. 
Most of you have heard of them. Crime and Punishment, Brothers Karamazov, The Idiot. We're going to look at that book a little bit today. He loved to read police blotters. That was one of his big things. He'd go in and just, you know, he's like watching crime shows, but he's reading about them from St. Petersburg in the 1860s and 70s. And man, it was pretty messy. By the time he died in 1881, he was hailed as a type of prophet for the Orthodox people of Russia. And really, um, he was kind of known to all the Slavic world as a special kind of person. But what was he prophesying? Well, more or less, over and over again, in his novels and in his work as a publisher, he's talking about a new age, a new world, and it's not good. In a lot of ways, he's talking about nihilism. He's talking about a chaos that he can see. He can see it being wound into the culture of Russia. And well, about 30 years later, this thing that he sees coming, it it becomes manifest. It becomes real. It's the Bolshevik Revolution. Uh, depending on what your uh, political persuasion is, I mean, I'm hoping you're not a big fan of the communist revolution in Russia. Maybe you are. Okay, go for it. A lot of dead people. Okay, a lot of dead people. A lot of suspicious people calling each other out. A ton of distrust deep cynicism, but maybe it was a cool experiment, I guess, perhaps people, they didn't even have equal stuff. Let's just put it this way. 60 million people died at the hands of the Soviet vanguard. So why Dostoevsky? Well, I think he helps us understand technology. That's weird, but I think he does. And above all else, he helps us understand, I think, America in 2020. So let's go. Let's go figure out why. And I want to start by saying it's his sense of smell. <laughs> yeah. He could smell stuff out, man. He was like a master sniffman. Is that a thing, Andrew? Sniffman? Can you be a sniffman? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go with that. Look, he could smell things out, and then he could suffuse the smell. He could literally just, he could push the smell of reality that he was somehow seeing into his characters. And so there was something super honest and real about his characters. And that sense of smell, that sense of being able to be aware of political aroma, and even more so human nature, and it's the aroma of what a person is, well, it's instructional for us, okay? Because he paints this picture of how an old world was being overrun. Overrun's a strong word, right? It's like hordes of things coming at you, you're being overrun. I feel like it's a zombie word or something. Well, how were things being overrun? So first you got to understand that there were two thunderous tremors during his lifetime that really affected him. And they're both coming from the same earthquake, from the same tectonic shift, okay? And these shifts, these tectonic shifts were affecting, fundamentally affecting the world he operated within. And that was the intelligentsia, the intellectuals, the, the well-learned of Russia. 
the academic world. And so both of these tremors I want to tell you about were born out of the same shift in culture, and they were both born out of an atheistic, scientific lig that was starting to come to Russia from Western Europe. And that, of course, is all the stuff we talk about on the show. Those were the ideas of John Locke and uh, the French philosophs and the new science. Okay? These ideas were starting to penetrate into Russia. So this is a really good way for us to look at how, how, how the old world and new world come together. Right? And the first tremor that you need to understand, the first theory, the first great articulation of something very different for Dostoevsky was this idea of entropy. The materialistic scientists of the 19th century, starting with Lord Kelvin, you, you, you may have heard of him, right? It's his name they use as a marker for all measurements of absolute value when it comes to temperatures. It is a unit of measurement, the Kelvin. Well, Lord Kelvin is proving at this time during Dostoevsky's life that every transformation of matter into energy entails a minute but irretrievable loss of order in the universe. The loss of order, if you don't want to think of it uh, metaphorically a little bit, if you do want to think of it as a metaphor, think of it as every time energy is changing to matter, something dies. So this becomes the second law of thermodynamics. It's known to us as the law of entropy. To Dostoevsky, he called it the law of decay. Kelvin's discovery had unique impact on Dostoevsky, but also on the Protestant mind of the 19th century. So Protestants here dominating Northern Europe, they are right responsible for the great thought centers of Northern Europe, the Protestant mindset. And how did they deal with entropy before we get to Dostoevsky? Well, this law of entropy sort of backed up their Christian notion of a fallen world. It implied a slow death, faded degradation, right? All organized form would fall apart. It said that the world, the material world, can't go on forever. If you all that apocalypse in that. Well, that's the scientists saying that about their own world. The Protestants looked at that and they said, yeah, man, you're just describing the fall of man. You're describing what happens because mankind sinned against God. They feel like the materialistic science popping up all around them may be, in fact, showing them what they already knew. Right? It's saying what they were saying. The Protestant mind of the 19th century was saying that science is sort of cool. It proves what we already knew. And in this way, the Protestant ethos was able to subsume, take in the new science. The Orthodox in the East are going to have a much harder time with this. But for the non-Christian intelligentsia, this is what's really interesting to me. When the law of entropy and all these scientific ideas become real, the law of entropy has a particular place in the new atheistic society of the 19th century. The impact of this law was Deeply disturbing for non-Christians, for secularists, because it described what lay in store at the far edges of the materialist paradigm. If entropy, the law of entropy was true, it essentially laid to waste all of the utopian goodwill found 
in places like the French Revolution and the American Revolution. All of the utopian goodwill, all of the ideas of making a better world, they were put to the test. Entropy said that wasn't going to happen. If you're a revolutionary trying to create a utopian world, a better world, a more perfect union, the scientists are telling you, uh, yeah, your little shining building city on the hill thing you're doing, yeah, that's doomed. Well, the ideas of entropy, it sort of sent everything toward this pointless death. It kind of made your efforts to create a better world seem pretty damn pointless. It was like the more cool stuff I invent to make everyone happy, the more I send death into the world. Ouch. And this point was not lost on our pal Dostoevsky, the guy I'm telling you about today. In fact, it could be said that his book, The Idiot, is in fact a tome to the idea of entropy. In the book, a long book, okay, good luck. But if you head in, it's worth it. The main character, Prince Mishkin, he's a fool. Yeah, he's not progressing in life. He's also not progressive. He is simple. Simple to the point of making other people feel very uncomfortable. He says exactly what is on his mind. Most of what is on his mind is thoughts about his own weaknesses and how he's kind of slow. And he lets people know it. He, well, he's crazy vulnerable in front of people. And he's sort of slow and almost still. The other characters in the book, all of them, they are not still. (laughs) They are circulating and undulating and moving. And all of them are at odds with each other, sort of like atoms bouncing off of each other. And none of them sits with a thought for very long. They are vain, the characters that this Prince Mishkin is getting to know. They are aristocrats, and their actions all lead them in the book toward death and destruction. Entropy. One of the main characters, a man named Hippolyte, he's dying. He has consumption. Tuberculosis is what that is. That's what they called it in the 19th century. And at a gathering of his friends and acquaintances, this is in the book, he discusses a famous painting, a real painting of a dead Christ. It's done by a Renaissance painter, Hans Holbein. About 200 years before the book is set and 300 years ago for us, Hans Holbein paints in the Renaissance form a really striking dead Christ. It's famous, this painting, for its realness. It's famous for its anatomical accuracy. It's a perfect rendering of death, right? And the death, the emptiness in the Christ figure of the painting, it is stark, and Hippolyte is pointing to it in this scene from the the idiot. He's pointing to it and saying, look at it. Check out the painting in our pod notes. There's a link to it. It's intense. Holbein's the body of Christ. During the conversation, Dostoevsky puts these words 
into Hippolyte's mouth. Now remember, Hippolyte is dying. This is the speech that Hippolyte gives. Quote, If the laws of nature are so powerful, then how can they be overcome? How can they, the laws, be overcome when even he, here lying in this picture, even he did not conquer them? And then Hippolyte goes on and he says this, quote, Looking at that picture, looking at it, you get the impression of nature as some enormous, implacable, dumb beast. Or to put it more correctly, as some huge engine of the latest design, which has senselessly seized, cut to pieces, and swallowed up, impassively and unfeelingly, a great and priceless being that you call Christ. Oh, wow. Hippolyte, a huge engine of the latest design. This is Dostoevsky through Hippolyte saying, this engine is senselessly seized and cut to pieces and swallowed up. The great Christ. But he's not done. His speech continues. And I quote from Hippolyte in The Idiot, the painting of Christ, it makes you feel like there's a dark insolent and senselessly eternal power to which everything is subordinated. Unquote. Entropy. It's entropy. The scientists, Kelvin, is identifying a law in nature that has been identified since forever. Death swallows everything up. Yikes. There's more to say about this, and I'm gonna. But before we do, here's a moment of joy. Andrew, music? This is our ad, and I love this advertisement because it's for a great partner of ours that's doing great work. This is an ad from our sponsor, Health and Help. Some of our besties around the world, we met them working in Guatemala. Health and Help builds clinics to provide care for patients of every nationality, faith, and sexual orientation. Our patients receive the necessary medical treatment regardless of their ability to pay for it. Every person on the Health and Help team understands their mission. They become better people by serving others in their medical needs. First Things Foundation, that's who sponsors this podcast. Well, we've partnered with them in Guatemala and Nicaragua. and Well, if you want to learn more, check out our pod notes. Go and support Health and Help because they go to crazy lengths to find the most vulnerable and provide medical care for them long term. And now, back to this scene from The Idiot and this quote from Hippolyte. Remember what he was saying only moments ago before the cool advertisement interruption? Here's what he was saying. He said, the painting of Christ makes you feel like there's a dark, insolent, and senselessly eternal power to which everything must be subordinated. Bum, bum, bum. You see, this is the idea of entropy for Dostoevsky, and it's real. It's the devil. It's the eternal power of darkness 
But the point of it all in this scene is that the characters in the room see entropy, that law, in the person of Christ. Christ is dead in the scene. Like, the idea is dead. The idea of life is dead. Nietzsche is going to say this 20 years later. God is dead. Well, in that scene from The Idiot, yeah, exactly. But more importantly than God is dead, is so is redemption, so is hope. Entropy, the scientific explanation of death, of the demonic non-meaning darkness, right? The scientific, very rational explanation. That idea has come alive. God might have died, but entropy as a way of explaining the world is alive and well. And Dostoevsky sees this. You see, entropy as an idea is all the rage in the new intellectual classes of Europe. But for Dostoevsky, his book is about a perfectly idiotic, humble man. And that book is meant to point out what really is dead. And what's really dead is the idea of resurrection. But it gets worse. Entropy is the first major tremor that shoots through Dostoevsky and makes him nervous about what are they bringing to us? I don't know. Maybe the law is, maybe the law is true, but why is the law getting elevated over the conversation about redemption? Why is the fascination suddenly with the dead body Christ? Why not with the alive body Christ? Why is the new fascination in Western Europe all about the dead, how you can paint the dead so perfectly, including God, when in fact we should be looking at the alive Christ, the resurrected Christ? What's going on there? That's the first tremor for Dostoevsky. The second one is a little even worse. The other massive idea in science at just this time is the notion of evolution. Darwin's theories were hot stuff. Think of it like one of these CNN tickers, like the one on the COVID cases. You tick, 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 tick. It's just on the side of the screen. You, you can't even listen to like whoever's Donnie Lemon because all you're watching is the numbers. Well, This is kind of Darwin's ideas exploding into Western Europe like that. They're in all the newspapers. They're challenging major, major, major fundamental traditions, right? In the educated world, these things are blowing up. They're literally like an answer to a prayer, if you think about it. If there is no God, right, this is the new academia. This is guys like Karl Marx. If there is no God, how do we explain our existence? Oh, bam, Charlie Darwin just did it. Charlie Darwin explained where we come from, and there is no conversation about God. We did it. It's an origin story. Darwin's determinist theory was particularly disturbing to old worlders, as you might imagine, but for Dostoevsky, there were two key ideas, and you see it all throughout his writings. There was no teleology. There's no conversation in Darwin about the end things, the purpose of things, teleology. What's the purpose of, of our existence? For Darwin, there, there's, there's, there's a beginning, but there's no end. Humans are just a temporary end product of some everlasting and random evolutionary process. Humans were not particularly special. They aren't like the ones that run the world. They're, they don't have any moral imperatives. There's no point to their life except to uh, survive. 
And so therein, you see a second big scary reason it, it unnerved the old world types like Dostoevsky. Evolutionary theory stressed competition as a natural condition of all things, humans included. And here's a really important point. This competition was not just one species against the next, but it was a competition between members of the same species. You know that's true. You can feel it, right? Heavy things lightly. You can feel that when you get a text from your real estate broker during your house hunting portion of your life, you fly to go see that property. Because you know deep down, this is a giant race against thousands of others to find the house, the very place you will live, the roof that will cover you from the elements. You need to run quickly. And you need to get to see if, in fact, there is closet space. Competition. So there's always competition. But now it became the mark of an ever-growing mechanistic worldview. It was one of the points. And Dostoevsky smells at how ugly and soul-destroying such a worldview would become. In an article in 1873, this isn't him writing a novel, he's just saying it, from his monthly magazine, Vremya, which means time, he says as much, and I quote, Give all these exalted modern teachers a real chance to destroy the old society and build it anew, and there will result such darkness, such chaos, Something so crude, blind, something so inhuman, that the whole edifice of modern civilization will fall apart under the curses of all mankind. Woo, happy time. Yeah, the whole edifice of Western civilization will fall apart under the curses of mankind. If you let the scientists, well, not really the scientists, the scientism's a, if you like the scientific philosophers in charge, that's what he thought. Yeah, this was that dude. He was smelling out a way of being, a way of being, a Western way of being that if it became the modus operandi for human beings, right? If it became the way we designed outside freedom systems, political systems, if this was the way we tried to achieve freedom using this rationalistic science, yeah, we would literally destroy what we know to be human beings. Now, I don't want to scare the living crap out of you because it sort of feels like that, but he's not that crazy because go read about transhumanism. Just do it. I, I actually don't want you to do it, but if you do do that, for our thousands of downloading people, if you do read about transhumanism, don't blame it on me. Uh although you could because I'm trying to get you to go read it, but Dostoevsky is saying something 150 years ago that now is literally an idea. Human beings aren't good enough. They need to be melded and molded together with machines, technology. It's a thing. It happens to be a thing that's pushed by one of the guys who also loves to go and organize Davos and loves to talk about the Great Reset. These are all things, these are not conspiracies, people. This is just reality. So transhumanism, I, not, I'm not saying like uh, someone's trying to make us into transhumanists, someone in American political power, I, maybe, I don't know, but that's definitely a thing. It's definitely, like, do you think something exists called self-esteem education? Do you think someone wrote about that and was like, hey, I think kids should be 
Educated in self-esteem. Yeah, that's the 1970s. And guess what? Everybody did get educated that way. It was a thing in someone's mind that became a thing inside of the schools that became a thing inside of the hearts and souls of human beings. Now everybody thinks they need self-esteem. That happened. It went from idea to practice to reality. Well, there's a thing called transhumanism. I highly recommend you go read about it, but I don't blame me that you did. I digress. For Dostoevsky, the political system was a distant second in importance to the inside freedom system. His system for inside freedom, for him, was Orthodox Christianity. It was the way he believed a person achieved beauty in their life. But he feared in the late 1800s that the new lig, the scientism of the day, would become the political currency that ultimately led to such a binding of the human being that it would literally take away your ability to gain inside freedom. It would make it nearly impossible. In other words, simply put, the wrong inside freedom people also built the outside freedom systems. This is what he feared, that the wrong inside freedom people, people who thought inside freedom was one thing, they would end up building the outside freedom systems. And those systems would destroy human beings. Like actually destroy them. Like again, don't don't go read about transhumanism, but if you want to, you can, and then you'll see that Dostoevsky had already anticipated this. Woo, it's nuts. What's worse knowing about it or not knowing about it? Ah, uh, the idiot. He didn't know. He barely even knew he, he was he was a millionaire. Like, what if you were a millionaire you didn't know about it? That's Prince Michigan. I think that's kind of cool, actually. So anyway, look, all the most important and beloved heroes for Dostoevsky, they are stripped down. They have nothing. This is one of the goals. The new systems he saw in Western Europe were bringing people a ton of stuff. Refrigeration, for example. That was a hot new thing. By the way, of all the great inventions, that's one of the greatest. Refrigeration changed lives big time. Think internet big. It's that big. Refrigeration changed a lot of stuff. Well, he's seeing that going, woohoo. On the other hand, he saw that if that became the way by which human beings operate, then there's danger in that. That's why he stripped all his characters down. Like I said, Michigan, the idiot, I mean, he was a millionaire. He didn't even know it. Sonia, one of his great heroes, she's a prostitute. Raskolnikov goes to jail. He's stripped literally of everything he has. Everybody gets stripped in his books. They're naked, right? And that was the point, was to lay yourself bare in front of all the stuff so you could learn about who you really were, right? And that's why he distrusted Western New World political systems, not because he was some big monarchist who loved czarist parades and imperialism. It was because the New World political system started with these twin scientific premises of entropy and evolution. At their core, they were dark. He didn't like it. He didn't like it. He identified that the new systems would be built on impersonal and very objectified human identities. The new systems would exalt covetousness and blind competition. Dostoevsky was no capitalist. He didn't like the sound of capitalism. He didn't like the smell of it. But he wasn't a socialist either. He did not trust that. 
For him, and this is the point of the podcast, we're almost done, freedom was irrational and beautiful. It was found in the daily art of what he called the acts of the little giants. And it was from these types of actions and these types of human beings that outside freedom would be constructed. The political systems always were second to the inside freedoms, to the inside spiritual path. So freedom from the government is a good idea for Dostoevsky because the government should be small. Now, how big, how small, how Republican, how Democrat constructed on the so-called neutrality? If the government's constructed on neutrality, that was the problem for Dostoevsky. Because for him, there was no neutral rationalism. There was no neutral atheism. There's no agnosticism in life. Everybody has to choose. And so a government that didn't have a principle, that was dangerous. And, but all governments would have principles because they would reflect the inside freedom or the beliefs of the little people. Eh, it's kind of idealistic, I agree. Inside out was the idea. Inside freedom to outside freedom. Inside struggle makes outside success. This is what we're talking about. Look, here's how to think of it in the end, this whole Dostoevsky freedom conversation, okay? This dude is writing again and again, over and over, about something you know about, I know about, everybody knows about. It's the child in the window. It was you. It's a little girl who's got pudding on her face. She hasn't taken a bath. Maybe it's they're not properly like wiped their butt after a visit to the bath. It's a messy kid staring out of the window, but really, really focused, just watching, perched in the window, right? And what are they seeing? Well, they're seeing a little wounded bird surrounded by the stark beauty of a new laid snowfall. A bird struggling to survive against all reason, none of it making sense, all of it very messy. And for Dostoevsky, that little moment of deep focus, that, that, that inclination and deep curiosity for the struggle, that's so much better than going to get cleaned up for dinner. See, Dostoevsky is always trying to say everywhere and again and again that the kid, the messy kid, is so much the better angel of our human nature. And that to clean him up for dinner or for school or for the proper productive life, to subject him to the scientism of the soul, to efficiency, that is a type of entropy. That's a type of decision for the kid that literally will just gut him. And it'll teach him, if you pull him out of that window, it'll teach him to be a utilitarian, a calculated, reasonable rationalist. And for Dostoevsky, the key is to shout, no, let that kid be. Open the door and let him go save the little bird. One sock on or not putting on your face or not. Go, kid, and vanquish the serpent. Yeah, and probably catch a cold. Yeah, and probably even catch COVID. Yeah, and probably, maybe, could die. That's freedom for Dostoevsky. It's irrational, but it's life. I told you it was confusing. <laughs>
And that is our pod for today. Shenis Gagimarjos, that means to you the victory, it's set at the KP table in Georgia, one of our favorite places where we work. Watar is produced by Andrew Schwark and Daniel Paternoth. Our prod is brought to you by the creators of First Things Foundation. We're a nonprofit that lives and works in some of the world's most impoverished places. We immerse there in order to create momentum for local change majors, folks we call impresarios. We support their idea, their vision for a better life, and we're looking for some people to put in the field right now. So share Watar with a friend, hit us up on iTunes, give us a positive review, and we'll see you next week where we talk with, well, uh, let's just put it this way. We have a nice interview coming up with John and Pat Joe. I'm not sure it'll be next week, but it's coming. We also have Uncle Seth on the horizon. Can't wait. So stay in touch. It's fun. Keep going. Support our work this way. God bless.